Let's pray together. Our Father, your steadfast love is higher than the heavens above us, deeper than the lowest points in the darkest ocean. And Lord, your faithfulness is so unsearchable and, and so inexplicable, so surprising and glorious. We worship you. And Lord, we thank you and praise you for your faithfulness to your promise. We thank you for the way that you have worked across the ages. We thank you for the way that Moses wrote of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the way that, that even in ancient times, you, you were then as now the God who saves sinners. Lord, we pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are able to embrace wisdom. And we pray that you would make yourself our highest joy, our greatest treasure, our life's ambition. Lord, make us those who live for you, we pray. And we ask that you do it by your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. I would invite you to turn this morning to Genesis chapter 38. And this is another one of those passages that after we had read it like once in family devotions this week, my wife said, can we read a different passage tonight? <laughs> this is not a passage that you would expect to find in the Bible because it is in some ways a sordid and sorry story. But, but, if you can look past some of these aspects of the story, what you see here is the God who saves sinners. You see in Genesis 38 that the God of the Bible is not a God who goes looking for the righteous people. He's not a God who goes looking for those who have checked the boxes, those who have stayed within the boundaries. No, the God of the Bible is the God of this world, and this world consists of no righteous people. And the good news in this story is good news for sinners. Sinners like Judah. Sinners like Tamar. People who have blown it. People who have done the wrong thing in the wrong way. The good news is that God, in spite of our sins, in spite of the ways that we live for all the wrong things, God is able to save. The God of the Bible is the saving God. This passage is, is magnificent, and, and as I thought about how this passage works in the book of Genesis, I, I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I'm, I'm reading along through the book of Genesis, and I, I sort of step back and I look at it, and I say, okay, we start into the Joseph story in chapter 37, and then we go back to the Joseph story in chapter 39. Why do we get this, pa this passage, this chapter on Judah in chapter 38? And as I was thinking about this, it reminded me of something that I once read in one of these books on how to write a novel, which I was, I read this book, I was thinking about that, I, I realized I'm no good at that, I'm not going to try that. But in this book, How to Write a Novel, the guy says, if you've got a rifle on 
the, the, uh, the mantelpiece in the living room in chapter 1, that thing had better be fired before the end of the story. And that's the way Genesis 38 works. If you come upon a passage like this and you think to yourself, why, is the world, why in the world is this here? Keep reading, and by the end of the story, you'll see why this is here. This is here, Genesis 38 is here, because Moses is setting us up to see the significance of Judah in the story. Significance that will be worked out in just a few chapters. We'll see it. And then at the end of the book, there's a very important blessing of Judah that Moses is setting us up to see the significance of uh, the way that the future king is going to come from the line of Judah. There are also significant ways that Moses aligns Joseph and Judah. So Joseph in Genesis 39, I'm sorry, 37, um, he was in the pit, and then his brothers, they see in Genesis 37, 25, they see these Ishmaelites who are on their way to carry their, all of their goods, their merchandise, down to Egypt. Um, so Joseph is going to be taken down to Egypt by this caravan, and then right after that, Jacob says that he is going to go down to his son in Sheol, in, in verse 35, mourning. And now at the beginning of Genesis 38, if you look at verse 1, it happened at that time that Judah went down. So Joseph has gone down into Egypt, and now Judah is going to be down. And then the next words are, from his brothers. So at the beginning of this chapter... You've got Joseph separated from his brothers down in Egypt, and now you've got Judah separated from his brothers. In some ways, both are alienated. Both Joseph and Judah are alienated from their brothers. And we'll see more about how this works in Judah's life as we continue through the passage. Uh, before we continue further, uh, I, I want to highlight um, some things about this first section of the passage, and I want to say again a word about how we find our way through biblical narrative. So as you read biblical narrative, I would encourage you to make this assumption. This author that I'm reading did things on purpose. In other words, you shouldn't just assume that he started writing and he just sort of went on about his way and said some things and didn't really think about how it was ordered or how it was... No, you should think this guy has put certain words in certain places on purpose. And then you should watch for ways that statements correspond to one another. You should pay attention. And, and really, uh, if we wanted to get serious about this, um, uh, we, I, I think that Moses probably has structured his accounts expecting people to memorize them and expecting that people will notice these things as they, as they memorize, as they meditate, and as they recite. So here in verse 1, it happened at that time that Judah went down. And then if you look down at verse 13, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up. And I want to suggest to you that the, the going down of Judah, the went down of Judah, and then the going up of Judah... The, this marks the boundaries of this first unit, and then we're going to see other uh, corresponding aspects of this passage as we continue. So this first unit, uh, in verses 1 through 13, is going to deal with Judah's sons that he has by an unnamed Canaanite woman. So in verse 1, it happened in that time 
that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There, with this Adulamite, he's away from his brothers, which also means he's away from his father. And there, verse 2, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. It seems that the Canaanite man's name is Shua. His daughter is unnamed. In some later texts, she'll be referred to as Bathshua because the Hebrew term Bath means daughter. So they'll just start calling her. It's sort of like Bathsheba, you know, daughter. Bathsheba means daughter of seven. Bathshua would mean daughter of Shua. But here, she is unnamed. And that is significant. There's a reason that she is unnamed. And, and the, the reason for that is provided for us earlier in the book of Genesis. You may remember the words that Noah spoke over his son Ham. He said these words, Cursed be Canaan. And the reason that Noah spoke those words is because Ham had dishonored him. And, and those words, cursed be Canaan, are picking up on the Lord's words to the serpent. Cursed are you. And then, uh, so that's Genesis 3.14. Um, the words that Noah spoke over Canaan are at the end of Genesis 9. And then in, in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abraham, Anyone who dishonors you, Abraham, I will curse. And so the Canaanites in the book of Genesis are under God's curse. So what does it say about Judah? That he knows the Canaanites are under God's curse. And then he goes among them and he sees one that he likes and he decides, I'll just marry her. I think what it says about Judah is that he disregards God's word. And I would suggest to you that to disregard God's word is to despise God's word. And, and if we consider this calculation that Judah is making, I think we can say that Judah values his own desires, his own preferences, his own impulses over the word of God, over the curse of God, over the blessing of God, over the promises of God. Judah is ready to forfeit the blessing, the promise his participation in the purpose of God. All of that Judah is ready to set aside for the daughter of this Canaanite. Judah's in a bad place. This is not a good move. Not the right thing for him to do. Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went in to her. Now I told you that verse 1 with Judah going down corresponds to verse 13 with Judah going up. Here in verse 2, Judah seeing the daughter of the Canaanite, if you look down at verse 12, these verses correspond in the course of time, or you could say after many days, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, notice how she's still not named. And the, again, the reason she's not named, this is not, you know, some sort of prejudice against women or anything like that. It's she's a Canaanite. And what's the problem with being a Canaanite? Well, she's an idolater. Is there any remedy for that? Well, yes, she could repent of her idolatry and commit herself to Yahweh, but we don't see any indication that something like that has happened. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. So he marries 
uh, the Canaanite in verse 2, she dies in verse 12. And then the intervening sections are also going to correspond to one another. If you look at verse 3, she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. So Judah has these three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah, and they're all born of this unnamed Canaanite woman. Now, I want to pass over verse 6 because that is at the very center of this first unit of the text, and I want to skip down to verse 7. And uh, before we read verse 7, here's what I would propose to you. If you have disregarded and despised the promises and purposes of God, you are not going to live for God. You are going to live for yourself. You're going to live for whatever you can get. And that is probably not going to keep you within the confines, within the boundaries of the commandments and the instructions that the Lord has given. So if you disregard God and you despise his word, you are probably going to be a transgressor at at every point at which you think you can get away with it. And the Lord is not going to look kindly upon that. In fact, the Lord is going to look on that and say, that is wickedness. That is evil. And the God of the Bible is a God of justice. He's not a God who just, just decides arbitrarily on no basis to go punishing people or putting people to death. No, he is a God who is going to meet the nature of the crime with an appropriate and fitting and just punishment. So verse 7, Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked, or you could say evil, in the eyes, in the sight of the Lord. Uh, there's a play on words here because Er's name is, is the word evil or wicked in reverse order. And it, it's almost like, you know, if you took the word Uh, live, and you reversed it, you'd have evil, right? So if live was his name, and then the word evil was there, you could see the play on words, and that's that's what's going on here. Air was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, if if we contemplate this, we could say, did Judah not realize that he descends from Adam from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, that he is in the line of promise? Did Judah not realize that Reuben, the firstborn, had disqualified and and, uh, eliminated himself? And then Simeon and Levi had done likewise, placing Judah as next in line to be the one through whom the blessing could come. And then Er was in the line of descent. That's what he could have been. We've read these genealogies earlier in the service, genealogies that that go from Adam down to the Lord Jesus, and the name Er could have been in that genealogy. Think what he forfeited for what? For sinful pleasure? For the indulgence of his lust? For the, the feeding of his own pride? For deciding that he was going to persist in having a bad attitude about everything, for deciding that he was not going to give thanks, 
He was not going to rejoice in this magnificent world that God has created. He was not going to praise his creator for the opportunity to be alive and to be a descendant in the line of promise. No, none of that was for him. Evil was for him. Transgression was for him. Anger was for him. Perhaps murder. We don't know what he did. We're just told that he was evil. But you can just go through the commandments. And he probably, in one way or another, broke them all. For what? To place himself squarely under the justice of God. That's what for. What I'm trying to get at here is I'm trying to help us all see and feel what we forfeit when we decide to indulge our sinful desires. We're not all going to wind up in the line of air, but the promises of God are available to us. The glories of God, to hear the sovereign judge hear the word, say the words over us at the end of all things, well done, good and faithful servant. On that day, those who hear those words, I think, will say, there could be nothing better than this. Nothing was worth losing the opportunity to hear those words. We want to feel that now as we face temptation. That's who air could have been. He forfeited it. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up seed or offspring for your brother. Uh, I just want to say a word about the custom here that is also outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 25. This is referred to as leveret marriage. And it's, the reason it's called that is because there's this Latin word, levir, which I think means brother-in-law. Maybe my Latin scholars can check that for me. Um, so leveret marriage derives from the, t the term uh, for brother-in-law in Latin. And here, here's the idea. I am my father's firstborn son. And my father is the patriarch of our clan. When my father dies, I'm going to receive what's referred to as the lion's share of the inheritance. The reason, over half of all the inheritance, I mean, this is not the way my family is set up. I'm just telling you the way it would be set up in the ancient Near East, okay? I don't know what my parents have done. Anyway, um, the reason I'm going to receive the lion's share is because I am going to become the patriarch which makes me not only responsible for my own family, it makes me responsible for my brothers and my sisters and their children. And so I'm going to receive all this wealth, but it's not just for me and our use. It's for everybody and, and everybody connected to us. That's the way this, this ancient Near Eastern culture works. So if I die before I have an heir, my brother-in-law, or, or my, sorry, my brother, my wife's brother-in-law, has the responsibility to raise up an heir for me. And then the inheritance doesn't go to my brother. It goes to the heir that my brother raised up for me. The, the inheritance stays with me. So you see, you see the calculation here. My brother is not going to be the rich man. His son, who's, who's legally my son, is going to be the rich man. And if you're a selfish person, if you're a, a person who likes to have uh, control over the resources, and if you want to be the big dog, you might not be so excited about raising up 
an heir who's going to receive all of those resources instead of you. And I think that's the calculation that Onan makes. Onan decides, I'm not about to, get, to, to cause to be born somebody who would take all of the inheritance that would otherwise come to me away from me. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a translation issue here in verse 9. I think it's a translation issue. I don't think they've done a good job in the ESV or other translations. So it says in verse 9, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Okay, so legally, the offspring would be heirs. It would be heir's son, which means that the lion's share of the inheritance, over 50% of everything that Judah has, it doesn't go to Onan now, even though heir is dead. It goes to this child that he would raise up for heir. And then it says, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, um, I'm not going to read the next phrase. I'm, I'm going I'm to read instead what I think it ought to say. Um, it, it ought to say something like, he would ruin the ground, he would, or he would ruin the earth. Now, they've interpreted, the, the translators have, um, and rendered it the way the ESV reads, but by doing that, they have destroyed connections with other passages. So, I'm an advocate for the literal translation of the Bible, and this is one of the reasons why. Because the phrase, ruin the earth, occurs very significantly all through Genesis 6 through 9. The Lord looks at what the flood generation has done, and he says, they've ruined the earth. And then he essentially says, so I'm going to ruin them. And then it also occurs in Genesis 13 with reference to Sodom, when, when there's that little comment when when Lot chooses Sodom and there's that little comment I think it's verse 18 of Genesis 13 and uh, Moses notes this was before the Lord ruined Sodom and then in Genesis 18 and 19 when you read about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah the Lord ruined or he laid waste to this is the idea so what Onan is doing by his those are the only places this terminology is used ruining the earth or, you know, destroying the earth, something like that. Those are the only places prior to this in Genesis where this phrase is used. And so I think what Moses is trying to do is he's say, saying something like, Onan is acting like a member of the flood generation. Onan is acting like a person who comes from Sodom. He's ruining the earth in the way that they did. And so if you know that, it's no surprise that we, we then read. So he does this. At the end of verse 9, so as not to give seed to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. No surprise at all. Verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. The implication here, so according to the Leverett marriage law, Judah, Judah has a couple of options. He can either release Tamar and say, Tamar, you're no longer part of our family. I'm not giving you my next son. Go find a husband for yourself. Go live your life. But we're done with you. Our, our connection, your connection with my family is over. He can do that. Or he can do as he does here, which is to say, go back to your father's house. But then the implication is, when my son Shelah becomes a man, I'll give him to you as your husband, and he will raise up seed for heir. That's what Judah implies he's going to do. But he does this in verse 11, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. 
So Judah acts out of fear, and, and he, he deceives Tamar. Uh, you'll notice that in verses 3 through 5, we have the birth of Judah's sons by this unnamed Canaanite woman. And then in verses 7 through 11, you have the deaths of Judah's sons and then kind of the hiding away of the third one, Shelah. In the center of this passage, and I think it's structured this way to highlight this person, verse 6, Judah took a wife for heir, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So she's centrally placed because of the prominence that she's going to have throughout the rest of the narrative. Let me just offer you a, a couple of applications in response to uh, what we see Judah do and what Er and Onan do in this passage. And, and really, it's one thing that I want to say a couple of things about. This one thing that I think we should respond to this passage uh, with is what we want to do is we want to align all of life with God's word. If God's word says the Canaanites are under the curse, now, you know, that's, this is Old Covenant, under the New Covenant, um, we, we're not dealing with nations anymore, so it's not a situation now that the Canaanites are under the curse. But if God's word says the Canaanites are under the curse, don't marry a Canaanite. I mean, that's easy, right? Align your life with the Canaanites. The New Testament indicates that we should only marry in the Lord. Align your life with God's word. When you go to look for a spouse, make sure you're looking for somebody who's in the Lord. Bring every aspect of your life into line with the word of God. And it pertains not just to specific actions. What we want to do is we want to hear the teaching of, of the book of Proverbs, and we want to come to a place where we understand that the blessing of God, so this is where Judah, Judah lost his way. Judah had access to the blessing of God, and he found other things more desirable than the blessing of God. We want to come to a place where we understand and feel and act like we believe that the blessing of God is more desirable than what our flesh desires. Judah wants a wife. Onan wants inheritance. And with inheritance comes standing, stature importance, significance in the clan. That's what he wants. What we need to see is that those things come by means of the blessing of God. Those things come by means of the wisdom that God's word gives. So listen to what Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 says. Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. My son, and, and you know, we, I think we, we, we can be confident that this is not the way Jacob has talked to Judah, and this is not the way that Judah talked to Er and Onan and Shelah, unfortunately. But this is the way we want to talk to our kids. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, and then listen to this, if you seek it like silver... We could almost say, if you seek it the way that Onan sought the inheritance. He wants the money, right? And so he, he's strategic and he's shrewd and he takes action. If you seek wisdom, 
like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. Then, listen to this, you will understand the fear of the Lord. You will come to know the living God and you will realize he's dangerous. When people are evil in his sight, he puts them to death. You, you'll know things like what Proverbs 3 32 says, the devious person, Onan, a person who's deceiving his parents, that's what Onan is doing. Judah says, go into your brother, raise up seed for him. Acts like he's doing it. Tries to get the good out of acting like he's doing it, but won't give himself, really. Won't sacrifice himself. Just using Tamar. The devious person is an abomination to Yahweh. That's why you fear God. Because he looks at devious wickedness evil and he says, that's, an, that's abominable to me. But the upright are in his confidence. Verse 33 of Proverbs 3. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Proverbs 2.5. If you seek... 2, 4, and 5. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. That's what we need. That's what we want. Just one more text. Proverbs 4, verses 1 through 9. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Don't be evil in the sight of the Lord and get struck down. Verse 5, get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her. She will keep you. Love her. She will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. That's what Onan wants. Onan wants to be exalted to the head of the clan. And the Bible is teaching the way to exaltation is the way of wisdom. It doesn't just come through being born first. It doesn't just come through having all the money. You can get those things and get yourself killed under the wrath of God. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Back to Genesis 38. In the next unit of text, we see Tamar seeking offspring. And I think that a couple of considerations help us to to temper our disapproval of what Tamar does. Tamar, I don't, what Tamar does is wrong. It's uh, sinful. It's not the right course of action. But I want to offer you two considerations that will temper our condemnation of her, her action. Consideration number one, uh, having children in the ancient world was a much bigger deal than it is in our culture. There are a lot of people in our culture that would prefer not to have children. In that culture, in, in this world, if you didn't have children, you were nothing and nobody. You were a non-entity. You were, you, you were bereft of all standing and all honor in the culture. So she wants to have children, number one. 
And, and I want to suggest, you know, the, we can't be certain about this piece, but Tamar is named, and her nationality is not stated, in direct contrast with the daughter of Shua, whose nationality is stated, and she is not named. And this suggests, at least, that Tamar could be an Israelite. Whether she's an Israelite or not, it seems to me that Tamar has probably gotten wind of God's promises to Abraham. And, and I, I would suggest, because of the way that later Scripture develops this, because of what we saw in Ruth, where Tamar is named in association with Rachel and Leah, and, and, and then she's also in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. I would suggest that, that it could be the case, I don't know this for certain, it could be the case that Tamar is motivated by her understanding that the line of Judah, which she preserves and perpetuates, is the line through which God's promise is going to come. That still doesn't make it right, what she did. But I think it, it, can, it can affect the way that we think about what she did. She, she's in a desperate situation. She wants to have children. Perhaps she knows God's promise to Judah, and she takes action. This unit in verses 14 through 19, is going to be bracketed by references to Tamar's apparel. So in verse 14, she took off her widow's garments. And then at the end of verse 19, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And there are going to be other uh, ways that this um, passage corresponds uh, to itself. Um, so verse 13, Tamar has been told... Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah. That's the end of the previous section. And also, you notice in verse 12, we read that Judah was comforted, and he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. So Judah's wife has died, but he's going on about his life. He, he's, he's comforted, and he's gonna, he says, all right, I'm going to go back to work. I'm going to go to my sheep shearers. Tamar, meanwhile, has been told, put on the garments of widowhood, go to your father's house. Her life has not been allowed to move on. She can't get on with her calling like Judah is now going to go do. So verse 13, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, verse 14, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. There's an interesting uh, wordplay again with that word Anayim. It means eyes. And so she's covered herself with a veil which means that her eyes are visible. And it also means that she has veiled herself from Judah's eyes at this place called eyes. And um, I, I think that the action she takes supports the idea that she's in particular trying to perpetuate Judah's line. She's not, she's not deciding, I'm just going to go be a prostitute and make some money and have some children. She's not deciding, I'm just going to go do this with any man who comes along. No, she's specific and particular. And however repulsive and inconceivable this might be to our culture, in the ancient world, that, that leveret thing, um, in, 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 in these cultures, that leveret marriage thing, the father-in-law was an eligible person for this activity. You know, there, it's like there are different... Uh, sort of uh, concentric circles of eligibility and 
uh, in some of these circumstances, the father-in-law could have been uh, one of the candidates to raise up seed for the deceased son. And, and you know, I know Leviticus 18 says, uh, you shall not approach uh, your, your son's wife to expose her nakedness. That's what it says. Leviticus 18, I think it's around verse 15. But the same passage also says, you shall not approach the daughter of your father by another wife, which, you know, would have forbidden Abraham marrying Sarah. So the, the patriarchal uh, situation is not... It, I think it's anticipating in some ways the law of Moses, but they're not living in accordance with the law of Moses by any stretch. Uh, so at the end of verse 14, we read that, that Tamar, the reason she takes this action is because she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. So they negotiate the price, and she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. That's a bold request. It's almost like she says, I want your passport I want your social security card number, and I want your credit card information. And this guy gives it to her. I think it, it, it reveals the level of his folly and his desperation, and it just makes the point, again, that sin makes us stupid. He, he totally compromises his identity. The, it, it would be like he's saying to modern identity thefts, here are my passwords, have them all. Here's my bank account information. That's what he gives her. Everything that is essential to him validating his identity and authorizing uh, all of his financial transactions. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So um, this passage, you know, at the beginning and end, you have Tamar uh, with her clothing, and then uh, you have uh, the, the transaction that takes place in the middle. And as I, as I said, I think that Tamar has specifically sought out Judah. And, and I want to suggest to you that by doing this, if this is correct, just grant me, just grant me the idea that Tamar had, had understood the promises, she understood who Judah was in the line of descent, and she decides his sons are dying, he's not going to give Shelah to me, and if I have a child by him, the children of promise will be continued through me, it, which is what happens. And if she makes that calculation on purpose then what she's doing is seeking the kingdom of God. She's, she's really doing what Jesus articulated in Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you as well. Now, having said that, um, I'm, I'm not authorizing Tamar's behavior. Tamar, what Tamar did was sinful and wrong and uh, inappropriate. But she did what she could do to seek God's kingdom and in the mystery of God's promise and, and, and providence and in the outworking of his purposes, he used it for good. 
In the next section, Judah seeks to uh, redeem the pledge. He seeks to send the payment that is going to allow him to get uh, the pledge that he has given back. And um, again, this unit is boundaried. Uh, If you look at verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat, look down at verse 23, he says to his friend, you see, I sent this young goat. And then back up in verse 20, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. And then down in verse 23, uh, Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own. And, um, you know, there's a close connection between... In fact, in Hebrew, it says, let her take the things. So he, he wants to take them back, and then he says, let her take them. And then uh, at the end of verse 20, he did not find her. At the end of verse 23, you did not find her. So, so this unit is bracketed by um, the reference to Judah sending the goat to take the things back, and then her not being found in verses 20 and 23. And uh, those outer units are surrounding what I think is the the central statement in, in, in really the whole of Genesis chapter 38. So verse 21, he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enayim? Now, uh, the cult prostitute language, the idea is that, that people would go to these shrines, these temples of pagan gods, and they would participate in these ritual acts that are referred to as sacred prostitution. They would pay someone, and then they would uh, uh, do what Judah has done with Tamar. And, and the reason for doing this was to attract the attention of the gods and to offer this as a sacrifice to the gods in the hopes that the gods would then repay you and reward you and bless you. And, and um, you can just see the perversity of, of the, the wickedness of the human heart to, to justify all manner of evil and to associate it with... Uh, an attempt to gain some sort of religious favor. It, it's just, it, human depravity is on display all around us all the time, and it's, it's in the Bible. The Bible's telling the truth about how depraved human beings are, and so this is just not hard for us to imagine, people doing this kind of thing. But look at what, well, let me, let me just add this. Another, so one aspect of this, where's the cult prostitute, is it, 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 it gives a sort of, religious um, um, softening to the wickedness of the way that Judah has used Tamar. So it's a little bit more socially acceptable to say, well, I did this for religious reasons than to just say, well, I was looking for a woman and used one, paid one and used one. Um, So so I think there's an attempt to kind of save face, even on the friend's part in referring to her as a cult prostitute, But the men of the place, in verse 21, they said, No cult prostitute has been here. And then that gets repeated. Verse 22, he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And I think in a very subtle literary way, you're getting Moses' estimation of what's going on in this passage. It's almost as though the author Moses, by positioning this where he does, by presenting it the way he does, is rebuking Judah. This was no cult prostitute. And, And I think it's an occasion, it's an opportunity for us to ask ourselves, 
When we see human beings, what do we see? Do we see prostitutes? Do we see people, maybe it's not a prostitute, maybe it's some other kind of person doing some other kind of thing. Do we see people that we think we have the right to use? Or when we see people, no matter who they are, no matter how they're dressed or not, do we look at people and say, that is someone who is made in the image of God? Do we think to ourselves, that is someone who could be redeemed and be used profoundly in the outworking of the purposes of God? That's what's going on in this passage. No, no shrine prostitute has been there. That was not a shrine prostitute. She's a woman made in the image of God. Not only that, Judah, she's your daughter-in-law to whom you had obligations that you did not fulfill. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. She literally, I mean, you could render this something like she's played the, the whore. She's acted the prostitute. Moreover, she is pregnant by, you could say, prostitution. And Judah said, now that you can see just the hypocrisy here. He's the guy who impregnated her by the prostitution. He's the guy who assumed that he was dealing with a prostitute. He's the guy who initiated the exchange. She didn't call out to him. He says to her, let me come into you. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. Now, this is the this is the central statement of this text. And Judah's verdict, she should be burned in verse, at the end of verse 24, is going to be matched by the, the, the new uh, calculation. Not, not, a, uh, not a sentence, but a verdict upon himself that we're going to see in verse 26. And the turning point is here in verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong. I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Uh, by the way, Judah, do you recognize this social security number, uh, this passport, this credit card information? These are your things, Judah. And when she says, please identify, this is the same language that was used when um, Judah had initiated this project of selling Joseph into slavery in Egypt, and then he takes a, a goat, and he slaughters it, and he dips the, the precious coat in the blood, and he sends it home to his father, and he says, please identify whether this is your son's coat. And now Moses is bringing that please identify language back to Judah, and mercifully, in the kind providence of God, in the loving justice of God, his guilt comes home to him and he realizes what he has done and he feels the wretchedness of it. And, and I would propose to you that at this moment, 
Judah is convicted of his sin, repents of his sin, and finds forgiveness and finds salvation. Verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. And here he confesses his sin. Since I did not give her to my son Shelah. It's like he, he articulates what he's done wrong. I didn't do what I was obligated to do for her. He doesn't need to say, I used her as a prop. That's already obvious by means of the signet and the cord and the staff. All that's obvious. And then evidence, I think, of ongoing repentance is found in the next phrase there in verse 26. And he did not know her again. I, I, it's as though he repents and he commits himself to a new course of life. And the rest of this book is, is amazing what happens with Judah. He goes from being someone who, when he's got a brother that, that he doesn't like, and he realizes an opportunity to make some money, he says, let's just sell him into slavery. And then he, he, he sees a, what he thinks is a harlot on the road, and he says, what's it going to cost me to use you? He goes from being that kind of guy to being somebody who's ready to say, everything that I am, I will put in the place of my brother. And if I don't bring my brother back, you put me to death. And then when his brother Joseph takes his brother Benjamin and says, this brother is staying with me. This guy, this guy Judah, who knows that he is not his father's favorite, who has not been treated the way he wanted to be treated by his father. He says, all my projects back home, everything that I'm living for, my freedom, I will take all of that and I will give it for my, my brother Benjamin. You take me, you put me in prison. I'll be your slave, Joseph. You let, you let Benjamin go home to his father because if Benjamin doesn't come home to his father, it's going to kill my father. My father hasn't been what I wanted him to be. He, doesn't, he still doesn't treat me the way I want to treat him, but I will lay my life down for it. That's who Judah becomes. It's amazing the transformation that takes place in Judah. It is miraculous. It is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And this is the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God who takes opportunistic, prostitute-using, selling brother-into-slavery people like Judah and transforms them and makes them self-sacrificial, Christ-like men of God. That's the God of the Bible. And if you're concerned about how you stand before that God today, I would encourage you to, to do what Judah does, to think about your sin, to think about the guilt of it, to realize it's evil and wretchedness, to realize that you're not righteous, to confess that before God. And to turn away from your sinful patterns. He did not know her again. And to commit yourself to walking with God and trusting in Christ whom God has provided as a substitute, as a sacrifice for sin. So this part of the, the passage in verses 24 through 26 is really about the vindication of Tamar, isn't it? It's the, it's the conversion of Judah, but it's also about the vindication of Tamar. And verses 24 through 26 stand across from verses 14 through 19 where Tamar was seeking seed by Judah. 
And then this ending part of the passage, verses 27 through 30, matches the beginning of the passage, verses 1 through 13, where Judah was having uh, sons by the the unnamed Canaanite woman. Now we get the sons of Judah by Tamar. And he has three sons by the unnamed Canaanite woman. Two of them die. And now with the birth of these twins, he's going to have three again, which also aligns him with characters like Noah and Uh, I think, and Adam and, and others who have three sons in the book of Genesis. Verse 27, when the time of her labor came, and then this next phrase, there were twins in her womb. The only other place where that phrase is used in Genesis is back in chapter 25, verse 24, with reference to, the, to Jacob and Esau, there, and, and it's the exact same, and behold, there were twins in her womb, the exact same phrase in Genesis 25:24, which also... It, it also signals to us, in the same way that Jacob was, was God's chosen through whom the line of descent was continued, now Judah is being identified as God's chosen through whom the line of descent is con- continuing. And as with Jacob, where the older shall serve the younger, uh, uh, I'm sorry, that was Isaac and then Jacob and Esau. Yeah, Jacob is prominent over Esau. So also here that the, the younger will be prominent over the older, in this, in this outworking of the birth of these twins. Verse 28. When she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. So the one who got the scarlet thread, he's the firstborn. But then his brother comes out before him, and it's that upending of the expectation again, where you expect the firstborn to be the one, but it's not. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. And in Hebrew, this word breach is, it sounds like the word perez or paraz. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So with the birth of Perez, the line of descent is remarkably continued. As we conclude our our thoughts about this passage... I would invite you to reflect on the way, that, the way that Onan forfeited the opportunity to be in the line of promise, an opportunity that offered him greater wealth, greater standing, a greater legacy than anything he could have attained had he received the full share of the inheritance. I would invite you to, to reflect on the way that Tamar sought God's kingdom and was rewarded with a place of honor in the genealogies. And also on the way that Judah, it's remarkable in this passage how Judah's shameful conduct is reported and recorded for all posterity. And yet so is his repentance and transformation. And then finally, we should should celebrate the way that God preserves the line of descent that culminates in Christ. God is sovereignly at work in spite of all human wickedness and all the shenanigans and all the inappropriate behavior. God is at work to bring about salvation. And I would leave you with Proverbs 14, verse 27. The fear of the Lord 
is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that our experience of you, the living God, would be like passing through a desert and our mouths being dry and our bodies feeling like we can go no further. And then we come upon a fountain, water that is cold and clean and life-giving. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to fear you, to reverence you, and to love you. And we pray that our experience of you, our fear of you, would make it so that we turn away from the snares of death. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.